It was probably a morning something like this. It was hot out. The haze kind of sitting on the valley floor. There wasn't any talking, but just the sounds of armor being cinched up, sores being unsheathed. They were a confident bunch of farmers. They'd already won one victory, and uh, they were pretty certain they could do it again. Uh, But the other side, well, they were some pretty great fighters, and they were going to put these Hebrew farmers in their place. They were getting too big for their political britches. The Israelite army was confident, though. They had a great leader. They've won some victories. They're going to win another one. But that was all about to be flushed down the drain. In one moment, the Israelite army went from champs to chumps. It was like the ultimate episode of fear factor. And they had to head down the walk of shame. Before we get any further in our story, I do have to ask you a question. In fact, we have to ask ourselves some questions because the story is going to answer that. And that is, what is faith? What is faith? We've got this, it's a great Christian buzzword, okay? We, we throw out, you know, I'm living by faith, or my faith is important to me, I'm going to step out in faith. But do we really get it? Do we really know what we're talking about? Do we really understand faith? I mean, it, sometimes I wonder if we're just like, we blindly take off and hope that God keeps up with us. And we can look back and say, yeah, I stepped on faith. Do we get it? And not just these, you know, these moments, these one or two big moments in life, but but this 24-7, day-to-day life of faith. Do we get it? Are we living in faith? And it's a question we have to ask. And it's a question that a story this morning we're going to look at is going to raise that kind of that nagging doubt of, is what I'm doing faith or is it just wishful thinking? It's a story which is going to hopefully help us help us know what God really wants from us, and if we're doing what God's want, what God wants. Well, our story is about two people, two contestants, two warriors, two kings. One of them was the people's choice, and one of them was God's choice. And our story is found in the book of First Samuel. If the ushers, I know they have Bibles. Uh, so they're going to come forward. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, just slip up your hand. We'll see that you can get one uh, so you can uh, study the text with us this morning. For Samuel 16 and 17 is where we'll be at. When I was a boy, my parents subscribed to the Highlights magazine for me. Uh, anybody here? I, the, the magazine's been around since... I think the 1940s, and it still exists. All right, anybody still get that in their house? All right, we're going to have multiple hands, so don't hand every Bible out to all hands. All right, highlight, you know, if you haven't seen the highlights, go to your dentist office. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a federal regulation that all dentist office have to subscribe to Highlights Magazine. Okay, so I read this growing up, and in it there was this feature called Goofus and Gallant. And it was this cartoon comic strip about two boys. There was the shaggy-haired, mop-headed, unkempt Goofus who always did the irresponsible thing. And then 
there was the nicely, you know, parted hair, well-dressed gallant who always did the responsible thing. And that's kind of what we see going on in our story this morning. We got this goofus and gallant thing going on uh, of two people, one who's going to act irresponsibly and one who's going to act uh, responsibly. You know, it, it, was, it would be things like, so you understand, you know, there'd be a picture of, of goofus, you know, right by his mom and it would say, goofus interrupts his mother while she's trying to talk to a friend. And then there's gallant sitting in his chair with his hands crossed. Gallant waits patiently for his mother to finish talking. All right, so that you know, so you get you got it. Okay, that's where we're going. Um, so God's choice is what we're going to read about in First Samuel 16. But before we get there, we got to know a little bit about the people's choice. So we get this contrast, and we're first introduced to the people's choice in First Samuel 9. And you don't have to turn there; just stay in First Samuel 16. First uh, Samuel 9, we're introduced to Saul. Uh, and Saul is actually described to us as, uh, as being head and shoulders taller than everybody else, a good-looking, a strong person, a great leader. And the people of Israel at that time were looking around them, and they saw all these nations, and everybody else had a king. And they so badly wanted a king... Uh, so they asked Samuel, give us a king, give us a king. You know, Samuel did the, well, if every other nation wanted to jump off a cliff, would you guys do it too? And they said, yeah, as long as it means we get a king. And finally God relented and said, fine, have a king. And so they elected Saul. They looked at him and saw somebody who was taller than everybody else, who was stronger, who was a mighty warrior, and said, this is our king. I, I mean, Saul did some great things. Uh, 1 Samuel 14.47 says, After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered him. Samuel was a great warrior, and at times he led the people well. But we find that God rejected him as a king. It's not what God was looking for. And that's where we pick up our story in 1 Samuel 16. It's the search for God's choice. It's the gallant to Saul's goofus. All right, 1 Samuel 16, verses 1. The Lord God said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, well, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and he'll kill me. And the Lord said, well, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. See, if a prophet shows up, usually somebody dies. Not this case. He's here to throw a barbecue. Uh, when they met him, and then they asked, Do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, so consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Samuel was there to anoint a new king. And so he called Jesse. All right, hey, we're having a barbecue. Bring your family. I want to meet your boys. So Jesse shows up and, and says, here's Eliab. Eliab's my firstborn. He's tall, dark, handsome. 
I imagine being the firstborn, he's the typical firstborn, real goal-oriented, real, a real achiever. Lots of charisma, lots of confidence. Perfect kind of person to lead a country, right? God said no. And then was Abinadab. And I imagine Abinadab probably turned to athletics to get out of his brother's shadow. You know, he could throw a javelin like nobody's business, outrun a gazelle. God said no. And then next, Shema. Shema was probably the cultured one. You know, Calvin Klein robes. He hated backwater Bethlehem because he couldn't walk across the street without stepping into Cal's business. He wanted a finer life. God said, no. Seven sons. And in each, Samuel said, is this the one? And God said, no. God said, no. Why would God say no? I mean, there's obviously some looks and talents and abilities. Well, verse 7 of Samuel 16 tells us, and this actually is what uh, the Lord said to Samuel after Eliab, the firstborn, he looked at, and he says, but it applies to all of them. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In a faith is an inside job. It's a hard issue. Abilities, looks, charisma, those aren't at the top of God's list. All right. It's not about how many consecutive weeks you've been ushering or leading a small group. Um, it's not about impressing other people. You see, the number one thing you need to realize about faith is that your motives matter more than your actions. Motives matter more than your actions. You know, I can drive the speed limit. But I'm doing it because the person in front of me is taking a Sunday afternoon drive on a Monday night while I'm trying to get to small group. Motives matter more than actions. Don't say, I'm going to step out in faith and all the while your head's calculating this job, let's see, I'm going to get car payments. No. Don't be in ministry because you're hoping to meet a spouse. Don't be on the worship band because you're just looking for something to tie you over between band gigs. You know, on the flip side, though, one caveat here is that actions do reveal your heart. Okay? Actions can reveal your motives. You know, the person on Facebook who every status is either a Bible verse or the lyrics of a worship song, but yet Sundays in the summer they're out worshiping the sun god. All right? You know, the family that has the plaque in their house that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, yet can't be bothered to show up on a Thursday night to help out a food bank. Actions do reveal your motives. But actions aren't at the top of God's list. Looks aren't at the top of God's list. Your motives are at the top of God's list. God can look in and he sees that. We can't bluff God. Oh, I can fool you. But I can't fool God. So then what? We still don't have God's choice. But verse 11, Samuel says, Okay, Jesse. Are these all the sons you have? 
There is still the youngest. Oh yeah, I forgot about him. He's off tending sheep. The youngest. Come on. Can't you give him a name? All right. Any youngest in here? All right. Where are the babies of the family? I'm raising my hand. All right. You now have biblical proof that the youngest get no respect. Right? Take that, firstborns. All right. Back to the story. Sorry about that. Um, So the youngest, who still doesn't have a name, finally arrives. Samuel says, send for him. We'll not sit down. We're going to wait until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought. He was ruddy and with a fine appearance. In other words, had red, reddish hair. Fine appearance, handsome features. Wait, I thought God didn't look. Didn't matter what people look like. I think God's just, this is the way of showing that, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's got to be somebody who's talentless and hideous of appearance, all right? Just there, you know. God will use anybody, regardless of what they look like. But then the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. This is God's chosen. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon, finally get his name, David, in power. And then Samuel went to Ramah. David, we're finally introduced to God's chosen. But I have to ask you to do something this morning. Forget everything you know about David. All right. Forget what you know, because imagine that you're reading through the Bible for the first time. And this is the first instance in which you come across David. And now you have to ask, what was it that God saw in David? What, what did he see that made him anoint David? I mean, how do we know that maybe David's going to turn out to be another Saul? I mean, what, what is it that God sees? Thankfully, the author anticipated that, and he gives us another story that's going to help us learn more about faith and what it was that God saw in David. First Samuel 17. We have to fast forward back to that original story, the day when the Israelites went from champs to chumps. The valley they were at was the Valley of Elah. It was about 14 miles west of Bethlehem. They were fighting the Philistines. You know, the Philistines, understand, were great fighters. They were sea people who just seemed to have an act for fighting. They had advanced technology. They were one of the first peoples to learn how to work with iron in their weaponry. Israelites did not have this technology yet. So the Israelites were up against a pretty tough foe, but they'd already beat them once at a place called McMash. They routed them, and they were pretty confident that this morning was going to be no different. This was going to be the same as every other battle because Saul, Mr. King of the Hill of the Middle Eastern Playground, was going to lead them into battle. So their armor's on. Swords are ready. They line up on one side of the valley, and at the signal from an officer, the war cry grows out, floats over to the Philistine camp, and they're waiting for the answer to come back. Nothing. Nothing but this low rumble. It sounded like a tank. Wait a second, there weren't tanks. But as the haze kind of burned off, What the Israelites saw at that moment, 
They all needed a collective change of underwear because standing before them in verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine army. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves, shin guards. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. It's about like your wrist, or in my case, two wrists. His, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Yeah, did he really need a shield bearer? Come on. This guy made the Incredible Hulk look like Kermit the Frog. His armor was 125 pounds. There was men in the Israelite army who did not weigh 125 pounds. The, the, the point of his spear says it was 600 shekels. That's roughly 16 to 19 pounds. An Olympic shot put, 16 pounds. World record distance, 75 feet. Imagine somebody chucking spears at you with a... The average human being cannot hold a seven-pound weight out at their side. Everybody's going, I'm above average. Everybody's going to go home and try it too, right? (laughs) All right. Goliath was a killing machine. Verse 8, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for a battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will be our subjects and you will serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. It wasn't an uncommon practice. It was a little less bloody that way. All right. You send your champion, we'll send our champion, mano y mano, winner takes all. But, verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The ultimate fear factor. So for 40 days, Goliath's voice booms out across the Israelite camp. Who's going to come out and fight me? Morning and evening, twice a day, he came out and said, send somebody out to fight me. Let's end this. And for 40 days, twice a day, the Israelites ran and hid. But David's about to turn this fear factor into a faith factor. Verse 20 says, Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. Previous to this, Jesse had said, Hey, David, go take some lunch to your brothers. They're fighting. Also, I want to know what's going on. Give me some news. Bring it back. So David's doing what his dad said. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things back here with the keeper of the supplies. He ran to the front line because he wanted to see the action and to greet his brothers. And as he was talking to them, Goliath the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. David heard it. 
And when all the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. I said, David's like the only one on the line. You know, hundreds of guys have just done their best LeBron James impersonation and didn't show up when it really mattered. All right. Saul's, David's alone. Everybody hides. And it gets better. This, this is almost humorous because Saul described as head and shoulders above everybody else. Great warrior, whatever. He's still trying to get somebody to do his dirty work for him. He's put out a bounty on Goliath. All right, David asked the men, they finally like, you know, it's like a bunch of prairie dogs are poking their heads out of their tent and they finally figure the danger's gone. They come out. David's going, what's going to, what's happening? What's going to be done about this, this Philistine who's disgracing Israel? And they repeated to him what they had been saying and said, well, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Uh, we back up, we find that Saul says, you get money, no taxes, and you get my daughter in marriage and all the privileges that come with that. Pretty good deal, but Saul's the one who should be fighting Goliath. He's the champion, but he's not going to do it. Saul's afraid. He's afraid of a nine-foot freak with impenetrable armor who could squash him like a bug. You know, he was afraid of what he saw. He lived by what was on the outside and was afraid of what he saw on the outside. But not David. In verse 26... Again, David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Maybe a little bit of irony here that David is not given a name when we're first introduced to him. The person who should deserve a lot of respect gets no respect from his dad. And here, the person that everybody was giving a lot of credit to, a giant named Goliath, who seemed pretty big at the time, David is not giving any respect to. He's got the proper perspective. He sees God, not Goliath. In fact, David goes and argues before Saul in verse 32. He says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. You guys are afraid. Your servant, I will go and fight him. Saul says, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I mean, is David serious? Can he really be serious? Is is this what God wants? Are we sure he didn't have a hero complex? I mean, yeah, he's been disrespected by his family. He's the runt of the litter. Maybe he's just trying to prove himself. The rest of the story is history. You know the story. Our culture knows the story. Just listen to March Madness every year and you'll hear 20 David and Goliath references. All right? The, the pace in the narrative picks up. It's just this fast pace. Saul says, go for it. David tries on Saul's armor, finds that he's too uncomfortable and it's too big. So David takes it off. He goes to the creek. He picks up five stones the size of his fist. He goes out to meet Goliath. 
with his sling and his stones. Goliath laughs at him, mocks him and says, why are you sending a dog to fight me? I'm going to beat him with sticks. David runs forward with that sling, launches a stone in the air, hits Goliath in the head, sinks into his forehead, he falls over. David runs up, draws Goliath's sword, cuts his head off, and the Israelite army wins again over the Philistines. How in the world did he do that? I mean, what a story. Verse 45, David said something to Goliath that tip us off to what we need to learn about faith. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down, cut off your head, and today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Where did this courage come from? You've got to ask, I mean, is this something I can have? And, and, and honestly, I read through the Bible and I struggle. I, I, you know, there's a chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11, we call it the Hall of Faith. And I think, I don't, I don't belong there. These guys, oh, they had something, I don't know what it was, but it's not me. What, what am I missing? You know, how can David be so sure that what he was doing was what God wanted? That, that he wasn't just going to go out there and get stepped on. That God really was going to do, was going to help him. Alright. Pop quiz, see if you've been paying attention. Where was Goliath from? Where? Gath. Say it with me. Goliath from Gath. Goliath from Gath. And everybody also just said in their head, and that matters why? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'll tell you why. All right. One of the principles you need to know when you're reading Old Testament stories is that details matter. Words matter. The writers didn't waste time with superfluous adjectives and things like that. In fact, they would have never wasted scroll space on the word superfluous, all right? So when you see a description of a person, you see dialogue, it is important to know. It matters. So when we read that Goliath is from Gath, it matters. You know, we, I think of the, the athletic world. We talk about sports people by name. I, whenever I talk about Albert Pujols, I don't always say Albert Pujols of the St. Louis Cardinals or Peyton Manning of the Indianapolis Colts. We talk about Albert and Peyton. Now, if I want to rub it into one of my Cubs friends, Dave, uh, I might say, I might try to do it, Albert, of the St. Louis Cardinals, just to remind him that our team has Albert and his team doesn't. Or maybe somebody who doesn't know anything about baseball. But when I say that he's from the St. Louis Cardinals, or Peyton's from the Indianapolis Colts, it's to let people know or to remind them. It's not part of his name, all right? He doesn't have a Boston Rob thing going on, Goliath Gath, all right? doesn't work that way. All right, so there's a reason that the name Gath... We, te- we, we need to know why Goliath is from Gath. And to find that out, we have to go way back in time. All right? We have to go way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 
9. Let me set this up for you. If you, if you don't want to turn there, you don't have to. Uh, but Deuteronomy is, we find that, um, well, let me just say that. You, you know, some of the story, the Israelites were in, in, enslaved in Egypt. God used a man called Moses, named Moses, to lead them out. Uh, and God had a special land, a promised land uh, for them. They get to the land and they send in 10, 12 spies. And 10 of those spies come back and to paraphrase them say, dude, there's big people in the land. If we go in there, we're going to get squashed like bugs. Let's not do it. Two guys say, yeah, but God gave us this land. We'll be fine. Let's go do it. Let's obey. And the people voted and said, let's stick with the 10. We don't want to face the big guys. And God said, fine, have it your way. You're not getting in the land at all. He was angry at them, said, you can wander around for 40 years. Uh, are on the outside, and that's your punishment. So the 40 years pass. The generation who disobeyed God has died off. They're ready to go in again and take possession of that land that God had given them. And we read these words. They're preparing chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. And then we find over in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 11, when it actually happens, we find this. Verse 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites, the giants, from the hill country, from Hebron and Debir and Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. Goliath was a descendant of those giant Anakites. He was a leftover. Granted, a very big leftover. He was last week's chicken salad sandwich that deserves to be chucked into the trash. He was a leftover. And God had already promised the Israelites, I will fight the giants for you. I will wipe them out. I'm a consuming fire. You do what I tell you. It's a done deal. I believe, I fully believe David knew this. And David was acting on that promise of God. God had already promised, you've got nothing to worry about. The giants are my business. You obey, I'll take care of it. That's where David got his faith. That's what gave David the courage to do this. You know, faith, it's, it's acting courageously. On God's promise. Promises. Acting courageously on God's promises. You know, it's not the big mystery we really make it out to be. I think faith is a little bit maybe more simple than sometimes 
we want to make it. You know, God's not calling us to live by fear. He's calling us to live by faith. You know, we really can be hall of faith kind of people. We can be like David, but not when we run blindly off or we try, you know, hope God follows or not when we try to muscle through life on our own or do things based on our abilities or our talents. But we can be hall of faith people when we obey God's promises, when we trust in God's promises. Listen to what God is telling us and obey it. You know, it's you don't hope you're doing the right thing. If that's your idea of faith, that I'm just stepping out and I hope I'm doing the right thing, uh, that's not it. It's obeying God's promise and acting courageously on them. You know, foes surround us everywhere. And it's not always the big ones that we consider test of faith. You know, sometimes we think of, you know, um, ten years ago the the big sickness we had, or or you know the job change in two years, and we think those are test of faith. Uh, but faith is what happens every day, from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed. And it's this everyday stuff that we need to learn to live in faith. It's, it, it's, it's this everyday, it's work, it's school, it's family, it's relationships. Those are the tests of faith. You know, so what is God asking for us? What, what does He want from us? What's gonna get me through the stuff of life? It's banking, it's acting courageously on God's promises. You know, I, I pulled out, I, I know this is not, in any means an exhaustive list, but I just pulled out three things, maybe three places to begin living out your faith in everyday circumstances. Three places to act courageously based on God's promises. You know, you look around you and, and you might be battling a giant of guilt for past sins committed. Maybe you're struggling with uh, sex before marriage or uh, you've wronged a family member, you've lied to a parent, a spouse, uh, an employee, or or a boss. Uh, You know, and you're just struggling with those feelings of of, of guilt. It's making life hard. You're afraid to admit it. You're afraid to do anything with it. There's a great promise in the Bible, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no reason to fear that giant. God's already taken care of it through Jesus Christ. Just confess your sins. God's faithful and just. He'll forgive you. We've got a lot of teens in here. And you've already determined that your giant is sitting right next to you. And you think that if my parents tell me no one more time, I'm going to scream. You know, your parents' idea, behold, my child is having fun. No, you know. But you know what? There's a great promise in the Bible. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, tells us that in return for obeying your parents and honoring your parents, God will make your life better. 
Who doesn't want a better life? It doesn't mean you're going to get the Xbox, but it means your relationships are going to be good. It means God's going to smile on you. He's going to look down and he's going to bless you. He's going to make things go well for you when you honor. It's a commandment with a promise. So don't be afraid of obeying your parents. A lot of us, the giant around us is money, finances. There's a great job opportunity, and yeah, you're going to climb up the economic ladder, but it's also going to mean that you're going to have to be working weekends and miss out on worship with God's people. Or you're just wondering, what's next? You're chasing jobs based on your feeling and, and maybe even wanting a change of just something different. But Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It's a promise you can bake on. We don't have to fear what's happening in our economic world, no matter what the stock market does. If we're not loving money, if we're not all about having more, then God says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. What a great promise to hold on to and to act courageously on and say, you know what, I'm not going to take this job because God's a priority in my life. I'm not going to allow my family to be consumed with having all this stuff. God's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. Let me encourage you with this. We each have many foes. There's many giants in our lives. And I know it's easy to be afraid. It's easy to wonder what's going to happen. It's easy to even wonder, what really is God asking for of me? What, what does he want? What does he expect? Is this the right thing? Am I, am, I, am I doing what God wants? But we serve a God who's asking us to live in faith, not in fear. We serve a God who backs that up with promises that are true. With promises that stand the test of time. Those promises are true back in David's time. They're true in 2011. Each and every one of them. God does not, he cannot change. And therefore his promises do not and cannot change either. That's the God we serve. Read this book. Read it. Get to know that God who does not change, who we worship. Get to know His promises. You know, there's a saying that says, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, this is one basket you can put your eggs, all of them into. You can bank on God's promises. You can count on it. That's the God we worship. A God whose promises are true now and always. That's faith. That's real faith.